This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be glad for you to open those up up with me and uh, turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2 is where we are going to be today. Uh, If you brought your own Bible, then that is great. And you'll know right where Luke chapter 2 is, probably. If you didn't, then there should be a hardback black one like this and a seat back near you. And Luke chapter 2 is on page 805. 805. Uh, today, we're going to be picking up with our topical series on uh, going through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so it's not my intention to exposit or explain Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14 this morning. We normally, our normal diet of preaching here at First Baptist Diana is expositional preaching, where we do uh, turn to a passage of Scripture and aim to understand what God uh, has revealed to us there. Uh, this morning, it is a topical message. So we've been studying through the Apostles' Creed uh, once a month uh, throughout this year with the aim to understand what is being affirmed in this creedal statement that Christians have believed for a very long time. Uh, Probably within uh, the first couple of hundred years of Christianity, most certainly uh, by around the 600s, Christians were confessing the very contents of this creed that we know of today as the Apostles' Creed. We're arriving today, though, at this statement about the person of Jesus Christ. So let me start off by asking you some questions. Who is Jesus? And how would you, how would you answer that to someone, maybe a family member or friend, or, or maybe someone that, that you just met in an elevator for a brief time? Who is Jesus? How might you answer such a question? Was he a good man? Was he a philosopher? Was he a religious guru? Was he more of an idea or a concept, a sort of representative of self-sacrifice and love? And does it really matter who you think Jesus was? I mean, as long as you believe in Jesus, does it matter how specifically you define the terms Jesus or believe? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, and even all, even most East Texans believe that Jesus at least was a good man. They believe in Jesus in some sense, so shouldn't we be happy about that? What about the core message of Christianity? What about the gospel itself? Does a person really need to believe the finer points of Christology in order to believe that Jesus died for sinners? What if you or your family member or your friend, what if you don't believe something central about Jesus? Can that Jesus that you believe in, whoever he might be, can he actually save you on the last day? Can that Jesus forgive sins? Can he make demands? Can he transform lives? Can he grant you an eternal reward for faithfulness? Well, as I said, today we're continuing our study through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, incidentally, you can see that in your bulletin on the right-hand side. There's the, the, uh, uh, the substance of the Apostles' Creed. It's been cited in slightly different ways uh, over the, the years of Christian history. Uh, this is the way that we're articulating it uh, here at First Baptist Diana. But you can see the Apostles' Creed content 
that's there. And since the earliest days of Christianity, Christians have been confessing their beliefs in short summaries like this. Some of the confessions or statements of faith that we find Christians holding to are right there in the Bible. First Corinthians chapter 15 is an example of one of those. Second uh, Timothy chapter two, also another example. And there've been many produced over the centuries. The word creed just comes from the Latin word credo or credo, which means I believe. And so it's the very first Latin word in the, in the whole statement of faith. And therefore, uh, that's why it's called the, the creed or, or the apostles creed, because it is the substance of what the Christian apostles taught. Now, a creed, as I said, is just a, it's a summary, a brief summary of what Christians believe. And Christianity certainly is a way of life, a way of living. So Christians are those who love, who worship, who obey and follow Jesus. But the Christian way of life is based on the Christian worldview or a Christian way of thinking. And Christians are those who believe certain things about who Jesus is and what he does. So thinking and living, believing and acting, these always go together. You cannot have one without the other. Our beliefs are visible in the way that we act and our way of thinking shows up in our way of living. Therefore, we must consider carefully what we truly believe. And this is no more important than when we're thinking about what we really believe about who Jesus is. It's highly important there. Uh, so you can see the phrase in, in the Apostles' Creed that's there in your bulletin and maybe on the screen behind me. Yep. Uh, the specific stanza that we're looking at this morning is this portion uh, that begins, and in Jesus Christ. So uh, just to kind of tag on with the top there, we believe in Jesus Christ, his God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That's what we're concentrating on this morning. And my aim is to explain this short affirmation by arguing that Jesus of Nazareth was and is truly God and truly man, and that this Jesus is the only Savior for sinners. Now, it's my prayer that God would help us not only to understand who Jesus is better, but that we'll also come to a, a greater trust and rest in the Jesus that God has revealed to us in the Bible, uh, that we will be able to have a richer and stronger trust in him. So let's begin by reading what really is a, a famous Christmas passage in Luke chapter 2. But as we read through this, let's listen carefully for the way in which the Bible affirms both Jesus' earthiness and his heavenliness, his humanity and his divinity. Uh, let's, let's read it together. One of the ways that we try to show respect for God's word as we stand while we read the primary passage, would you mind standing with me as I read from Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 down through verse 14. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, 
And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. As I mentioned already, uh, the main point or main idea of today is that Jesus of Nazareth was and is truly God and truly man. Looking at that stanza of the Apostles' Creed. And this Jesus is the only Savior for sinners. Uh, That also is in your bulletin. If you are a note taker, you can see that there. Also, if you're a note taker, here are the three points for today. First, Jesus is truly God. Some overlap with the second point then. God, the Son, became a man. And then third and finally, Jesus' life and death are historical fact. So Jesus is truly God. God, the Son, became a man. And Jesus' life and death are historical fact. Uh, Point number one, Jesus is truly God. And directly speaking with this first point, I'm arguing today that Jesus of Nazareth was the God of the universe, was and is the God of the universe. I am not saying that Jesus is merely a God or that he is like God. I am arguing that, that he is the unique Son of God and God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now, I'm simply going to summarize uh, much of the Bible's teaching here. And all, if all of this sounds strange or overly complicated, well, then it might be, it doesn't have to be this, but it might be that some of us haven't given Christian doctrine the attention or time that it really deserves. If this doctrine-rich, content-rich sermon today, if it tastes too heavy for your mental or spiritual palate, then maybe the solution is not for you to avoid weighty subjects in the future, but rather to engage with them, uh, to study Christian doctrine all the more so that your palate will adjust and you'll be able to digest it a bit more easily. Uh, There's some ways you can do that within the context of what this uh, local church uh, does uh, in our normal ebb and flow of of life together. You can jump into a life group on Sunday mornings. Uh, You can join in with some retired guys on Friday mornings and study systematic theology together. Uh, You can Uh, Just ask a a fellow church member to study a book of the Bible with you or maybe a systematic theology book or some other uh, piece of Christian literature. You can participate in Wednesday night Bible studies in the fellowship hall uh, here. We do that at 615 from 615 till about 715, 730. We study the Bible together. Uh, You can ask me uh, for a book recommendation. I'm always happy to recommend stuff. Just tell me what you're interested in. I may even have something on hand that I can give you for free uh, that we have as part of our church library. Any one of these are are great ways, and there are other certainly ways of you studying more deeply what Christians believe and why. For our purposes today, what we want to understand is that the Apostles' Creed is our our sort of springboard. The Scripture, though, is what's underneath there. Uh, So the Apostles' Creed is merely summarizing what the Scripture teaches. And here's the way the, the Creed phrases it. We believe in Jesus Christ, His, God's, only Son, our Lord. Now, this short phrase is dense with meaning, so let's just take it one little bite at a time. We believe in Jesus, uh, that is, Jesus of Nazareth, this particular historical person 
who was the son of Joseph and of Mary. But we'll get to that in point number two. We believe that this Jesus is God's only son, his only son. That is, that Jesus is God's son in a unique way, uh, unlike anything or anyone else. Well, the Bible teaches that all humans are created in the image of God. And there's a sense in which we might say that all people are therefore children of God, since God grants common grace to everyone. Like a benevolent father, God makes the sun to rise, the rains to fall, seasons to change for everybody, both the righteous and the wicked. But the Bible only really uses the phrase children of God to refer to those who are under God's covenantal blessings and favor in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. These are sinners who have been adopted into God's family. They have become his beloved children who share in the full blessings and favor of their heavenly father. But Jesus is not the son of God by way of creation, like all image bearers are the children of God. Jesus, uh, God the Son, was with the Father before creation existed. So he's not, he's not the Son of God by way of being created in the image of God. He is with the Father before all creation. And Jesus is not the Son by way of adoption like Christians are. His equality with God is a reality of his very nature. Jesus is the Son of God in a unique sense. There is nothing and no one else like him. Before he was Jesus of Nazareth, he was already the Son of God and God the Son. This is why Jesus could pray in John chapter 17, and now Jesus praying to God, to to the Father, and now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed, John 17, 5. And this is why God the Father and God the Son are described as having loved one another before the foundation of the world, John 17, 24. This is why the Gospel of John says that in the opening phrases of John's Gospel, the Word was both with God and was God in the beginning already. And that that divine Word, which is simultaneously distinguished from God, not exactly uh, the same person, but also is uh, is designated as God, that that there's this simultaneous distinction and designation and that this Word became flesh in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was and is truly God. And this is why all of heaven erupted in praise when he was born, as Luke recorded for us in chapter 2 of his gospel that we just now read. Jesus was indeed a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. But even then, look how Luke phrases it. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. And he is the central focus of the good news of great joy for all the people who would spell peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. So Jesus, even in his birth, is represented as divine, as God. So Jesus is truly God. Some overlap now as we get into point number two. God the Son became a man. From the very beginning, Christians have worshipped Jesus as God. They taught one another that Jesus is divine. And they sung songs of praise to and about Jesus from the very beginning. And so too, Christians have affirmed that Jesus was a real, actual, true human man. How both of these affirmations are true at the same time is indeed something of a mystery. But that Jesus was and is both truly God and truly man is crystal clear from the Bible's teaching. In our main passage, Luke chapter 2. 
we read several details which affirm, as the creed says, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Joseph and Mary were betrothed, as Luke tells us in his gospel, and Mary was already with child, verse number five. And in chapter one of Luke's gospel, he tells us how Jesus was conceived. An angelic messenger told Mary that she would bear a son who would be the son of God and who would reign over an eternal kingdom. That's Luke chapter one, verses 31 to 33. And this miraculous son would be born after the Holy Spirit created a supernatural pregnancy, even while keeping Mary's virginity intact. Now, this is why the Apostles' Creed affirms both that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he was born of the Virgin Mary. The language here is careful to affirm the uniqueness of Jesus' conception. It was unlike any other. And also the reality of an actual human birth. He really was born. Jesus didn't just appear to be human. God the Son didn't merely take on the shape of a man. No, in Jesus of Nazareth, God became man. This is one of the great mysteries of Christianity, since it is impossible for us to fully grasp the mechanics of how this can be. How can the divine creator and sustainer of the universe enter into creation himself and become one of us? How can the infinite God put on finitude? How can the timeless and spaceless one be confined in any way within time and space? And yet this mystery is central to the Christian religion. Unlike deism or Islam or modern Judaism, Christians believe that the transcendent God, who is other outside of creation, became imminent, near, among creation, in the person of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews uses, uh, it tells us both of these truths simultaneously. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter two and, or chapter one and let's see this together. If you brought your own Bible, then you can flip there pr- probably pretty easily. If you're using that hardback black one, you're looking for page 941, 941 to Hebrews chapter one. We'll just look at the first three verses and then we'll skip down a little bit and look at some other stuff. So the author of Hebrews is affirming both of these truths simultaneously, that Jesus is the God of the universe that God the Son became a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and that this, that this uh, Jesus is one who is fully divine and fully human, truly divine and truly human. So Hebrews chapter 1, the scripture begins by saying this in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So think about it for just a moment. The Son of God is the one through whom God created the world. Therefore, God the Son transcends creation. He's above, outside of creation. He is before it. The Son of God is the radiance of the glory of God, verse 3, the exact imprint of His, God's nature, which means God the Son shares the same glory and nature as God the Father. And the Son of God upholds the universe by the word of His power, verse 3, which again speaks to His transcendence, His otherness, His otherworldliness. The whole universe is dependent upon Him, not the other way around. 
Now, you might be thinking, all right, Mark, you said that point one was about Jesus as God. Point two is supposed to be about Jesus is a, as a true man. Okay. Well, look with me down at the, at the end of Hebrews chapter two. So we're still in Hebrews. Hebrews is affirming the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ there, that he is God. At the end of Hebrews chapter two, picking up in verse 14, Jesus, of course, is the focus of all of the book of Hebrews. Here's what the Bible says about him there. Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 14. Since, therefore, the children, and speaking of the children as the children of God from verse 13, since, therefore, the children share in the flesh and blood, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Look down to verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, an atoning sacrifice is what that big word means, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Do you hear the clear emphasis on God the Son as a real or true human? Verse 14 says that he partook of flesh and blood in the same way as those humans he came to save. Verse 17 says it even more emphatically that he had to be made like his brothers. Again, referring to those he came to save in every respect. Verse 18 even says that God the Son suffered when tempted, just as those he helps. Now, of course, of course Hebrews chapter 4 is clear that when Jesus was tempted, he was tempted without sin. He remained without sin. But nevertheless, the, the, the uh, clear biblical um, aim is to present Jesus as a real, a true human, just like other humans. Now, I could stack up several other Bible passages which would affirm this reality, but let's just take a moment to think on, to savor, to delight in the fact that Jesus was and is a real human man. Why is it so good that God the Son became a true human. What specific comfort or hope or strength or help can we gain from meditating on this profound doctrine? A Charles Spurgeon, a masterful preacher back in the 19th century, a Baptist pastor in London, he was preaching on Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, because Christ himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those uh, when tempted, who are tempted. Uh, and he was using the uh, Pilgrim's Progress as a sort of an analogy. If you've never read the Pilgrim's Progress, I strongly encourage you to do it. It's such a fascinating story, uh, basically a, an analogous story of, of the Christian life. And so the main character is a guy named Christian who makes his way from the city of destruction on his way to the celestial city and runs into all sorts of difficulties along the way. Uh, just kind of a depiction of the Christian life. Part two is about his wife and kids and others who make their way along the same path. Christiana and the children. Uh, Spurgeon was pointing to Christiana. If you haven't read the book, don't worry. You'll still be able, I think, to get the gist of what he's saying here. But if you've read it, it'll be all the more uh, interesting to you. Here's what he said. So Hebrews 2.18, that Christ, that he was tempted like those he came to save in order to be a help to those that he came to save. This is what Spurgeon said about it. He said, I think I might liken you, speaking to his congregation, on a large scale to that little band of pilgrims. Christiana and Mercy and Matthew and James and the rest of them who started from the city of destruction, who, when they came to the interpreter's house, one who was going to kind of help them along the way, uh, were put under the escort of Mr. Greatheart. This is one who's going to lead them through as they went along their way. 
Spurgeon said, our great savior is Mr. Greatheart. And he is going with us all the way to the celestial city. We are but like those boys and girls, and we are afraid of what we might meet on the road. There are lions in the way. But he said, Mr. Greatheart can kill them or restrain them from hurting us. There is Apollyon, speaking of the devil, in the valley, but our great heart is more than a match for this arch fiend. We shall have to go through the valley of the shadow of death, yet each one of us will be able to say, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We shall have to go through, the, through vanity fair and to bear the jeer and jibe of the mocking mob, and we can hear all of that, for we shall have our great captain with us. But Spurgeon continued, Here comes that dark thought to some. We shall at last come to the river of death without a bridge. Mr. Greatheart, speaking, uh, Spurgeon pointing back to the story, uh, John Bunyan was the guy who wrote this story. He says Bunyan meant Greatheart to be the minister, that he had to go through the stream with the rest. Uh, so Greatheart in the story is kind of the, the pastor of the group. But Spurgeon is saying that this Mr. Greatheart is the image of Jesus. He says, our Mr. Greatheart, when we get to the river, Christ himself will go through the river with each one of us. He will put his mighty arm around us. And when we get where our feet cannot feel the bottom, he will say to each one of us, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. To die with Jesus, Spurgeon said, is better even than living with him. Brothers and sisters, here is comfort. Here is hope. Here is strength and here is help from taking a little time to think deeply on a profound biblical doctrine that the son of God became a man because our savior is both God and man. He is well able to lead and to guide us, to sympathize with us and to walk beside us through whatever we may face in this life for he himself has experienced all of it. He's experienced frailty, sorrow, betrayal, hunger, neglect, abuse, lack, the deepest pain. He has endured it all and he has conquered it all. And he has promised to never leave or forsake us. God the Son became a real, true human man. Point number three, Jesus' life and death are historical fact. I'm going to do with this point a little apologetics with you. Uh, so bear with me if this is not your cup of tea, uh, but uh, I think it'll be a help to us, at least uh, for by way of encouragement. It was a couple of months ago when we set our attention on Christ's resurrection and his ascension as we were studying through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, both of these are essential aspects of Christ's work or his role as the Messiah. Uh, today, our attention is on the person of Christ. Who is this Jesus? Which certainly overlaps with his work, but with this third point, I'm arguing that Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, is a real flesh and blood person who actually had a birthday, a home address, at least as a child, a few recorded courtroom appearances, and a burial place that you could find on a map if you lived back then. Now, the details of Jesus' life are not as easily accessible today than they once were. Neither Jews nor first century Romans kept a calendar in the same way that we do. And the sands of time have covered over all of the ground that was surface level 2,000 years ago. However, we do have a lot of historical evidence for all sorts of nations and people. And there is none that have a better historical attestation than Jesus of Nazareth. 
So again, the Apostles' Creed says, We believe in Jesus Christ, his God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Friends, this affirmation contains what is called falsifiable claims. And it's an affirmation of what Francis Schaeffer once called true truth. Either it's true or it isn't. But it can't just be my truth or your truth. This is why Christianity is more than just a mere philosophy or ethic. We believe that Jesus actually, really, historically lived and died and then was resurrected from the grave never to die again. Friends, Christianity is not built on folklore, and it's not just one philosophy among many others. As I've already said, Christianity certainly is a way of life, but the way Christians live springs from a system of beliefs, a worldview. And historic Christian belief about the person of Jesus Christ is far different than the mythological figures of other religions. For example, Before Hercules came to New York as Arnold Schwarzenegger back in 1970 in that uh, fun movie, and before Disney turned the myth into a movie about sacrifice and love, the story of Hercules was part of a religious system, Greek mythology. Hercules epitomized the exaggerated masculinity of ancient Greek culture, and he was one one mythical demigod among many other fantastical gods and goddesses. But the Greeks weren't unique in their uh, pervasive religious system with supernatural creatures and sacred rituals. The Reformation theologian John Calvin, he once wrote that humans are inherently religious. We just can't not worship. It's what we were created to do. Now, you may find someone here or there that claims to be an atheist, but you won't find a single civilization in all of human history that does not have a place and a system of worship. Uh, everyone does. This is, this is human nature. It's built in. Uh, The Romans, they basically shared the Greek pantheon. They just gave Roman names to Greek gods, it seems. And before the time of the ancient Greeks, the Iron Age Europeans, those who were often called the Celts, they had more than 20 gods in their pagan mythology. Around the same time period, Babylonians and Assyrians, they embraced the Mesopotamian gods, which include Baal, Marduk, and Ishtar, some of these mentioned in the Bible. And before these, the Egyptians worshipped Horus, Isis, and Osiris, and many others. Around the Western calendar's turn from B.C. to A.D., the Hindu pantheon began taking shape, totaling today more than 33 million gods. The Aztecs, from about the 1100s to 1500s, they worshipped about 200 deities. The Germanic pagans during the uh, Viking Age, they worshipped Odin, Thor, Loki, and others. I could go on. Japanese Shintoism, Chinese Confucianism, Taoism, traditional African and Native American religions, all of these have an origin story some descriptive of the supernatural, and a system of worship, even if it is sort of vague and superstitious. But Christianity is completely unique in its claim that the God of the universe entered into real human history in the person of a true man. This is utterly unique in all of the religious systems of the world. The Bible teaches that Jesus didn't arise from the fog of mystery, but that he was and is a real historical person. And his backstory does not read like Greek mythology at all. So if you still have your finger in Luke chapter 2, let's see what it says there. And see how this compares to uh, a mythological sounding backstory. In Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 1, the Bible sets Jesus' birth in real human history. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now think about it. The New Testament claims that the ruler of the known world, Caesar Augustus at that time, issued a decree, which was a publicly recorded order to be enforced throughout the empire. This particular decree was the first registration, Luke says, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and it sent all the Roman subjects back to their hometown. Well, now, did Caesar Augustus issue any such decree? Was there a person named Quirinius? Did he ever sit in the office of governor in Syria? And was there more than one census of Roman citizens around that same time period? All of these are claims to historical fact, which can be researched. But the point is clear. The Bible means to tell us that Jesus was born in real history. What about the claims that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he died and was buried? Well, the New Testament itself is the most criticized and yet the most authenticated record from ancient history. I argue that the testimony of Scripture itself is sufficient to establish and validate such claims that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. And the entire New Testament repeatedly affirms that Jesus was the crucified and risen Savior. But if you'll indulge me for a moment, here's where the apologetic is going to come in a little bit more. I'd like to show you that even sources outside of the Bible affirm, support these claims. Two ancient sources I'll point to briefly. One, a, Jew, a, a first century Jew, and the other, a first century Roman. Both antagonistic to Christianity, and they have very interesting information in their writings. The first, Flavius Josephus, was a first century Jewish historian, and he wrote something called A History of the Jewish War, around 70 AD, maybe a little after that. And a portion of his text mentions a man named Jesus, and here's what he says about him. So this is a first century Jewish historian writing about this man named Jesus. He said, at that time there appeared a man, if it is permissible to call him a man, he worked miracles, wonderful and mighty. And many of the multitude followed after him and hearkened to his teaching. And many souls were in commotion, thinking that thereby the Jewish tribes might free themselves from Roman hands. And when thereafter knowledge of it came to the Jewish leaders, they assembled together with the high priest and said, we are powerless and too weak to withstand the Romans. We will go and communicate to Pilate what we have heard, and we shall be clear of trouble lest he hear it from others. And they went and communicated it to Pilate, and he had that wonder worker brought up, and he pronounced judgment. The teachers of the law were overcome with envy and gave 30 talents to Pilate in order that he should put him to death. And they laid hands on him and crucified him, contrary to the law of their fathers. So according to a first century Jewish historian who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus worked miracles. He was opposed by the Jewish leaders and the high priest. He was betrayed by them and handed over to Pilate and was subsequently crucified by him. Friends, this is what you call historical corroboration to the biblical witness. And it's from a hostile source, one that doesn't believe the Bible is, te is teaching is true. But the Roman historian Tacitus is even more interesting, I think. Tacitus lived from 50 AD until 117 AD, and he was a historian of the Roman Empire. His, interest, uh, his entry about Christians is especially fascinating 
because he obviously didn't like or even respect Christians. And yet what he wrote about them perfectly aligns with what the Bible teaches about Jesus and his followers. So Tacitus, in this portion that I'm going to read to you, he was describing how Emperor Nero blamed the Christians for a fire that had been started in Rome, very likely started by Nero himself. And he was also, Tacitus was describing how these Christians suffered great persecution because of this false charge. So he wrote this, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. Christus, which is the Latinized version of of Christ, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. According, accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded, pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames to be burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired." Not only does Tacitus affirm the horrible persecutions that first century Christians experience and second century Christians, but he also mentions a few specific details which are relevant to our consideration this morning. First, he says that this man who was called Christus or Christ suffered the extreme penalty, death by crucifixion, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Then he says that a most mischievous superstition broke out, not only in Judea, but even in Rome. This seems to me to be a clear reference to the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, he's saying it as an antagonistic claim. He thought the Christians were superstitious. But his belittling remark nevertheless affirms what first century Christians were already believing and doing in following Jesus, even after his death. Thus we have an unbelieving Jew and an antagonistic Roman, both first century historians and both writing about this extraordinary person, Jesus of Nazareth, who really did live, who really did die, and who really did conquer death in real human history. So friends, the Bible storyline is not just an interesting tale. It's a record of how the real God of this universe has really entered into human history in the person of a real man. The Bible tells us how God and man have been in relationship from the very beginning and how man rebelled against God's good authority, choosing sin over submission. The Bible tells us how sin has affected the whole of creation, yielding chaos, sorrow, tragedy, and even death. And the Bible tells us how God graciously promised a savior, and how God continued to show himself both merciful and holy for centuries. And then the Bible tells us how God miraculously entered into creation himself. God the Son taking on a human nature from that moment on. True divinity and true humanity. One person with two natures. Forevermore the God-man. 
And the Bible tells us that Jesus was born, that he lived, and that he died. Not mysteriously or secretively, but right out in the middle of the stage of human history. And after that, the Bible tells us that same Jesus who died rose from the grave victorious over death, proving that he was and is the one he claimed to be, God with us, Emmanuel, truly God and truly man. And friends, it's only this Jesus who can save sinners like us. Only a real human can live a life of perfect obedience under God's law, earning righteousness before God. Only a real human can suffer God's judgment against human sinners, exhausting God's wrath. And only a real human can serve as the gracious mediator between God and man forevermore. So too, only a Savior who is truly God could endure the full weight of God's wrath against all sinners that he came to save. Only a Savior who is truly God can lay down his life and pick it back up again of his own power. And only a Savior who is truly God can fully reveal to us the character and nature of God himself. Friends, this is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the only Jesus who can actually save you or me on the last day. This is the only Jesus who forgives sin, who makes demands, who transforms lives, who grants eternal reward for all those who keep the faith or persevere in him. My prayer is that God would help us to trust in this Jesus, not a Jesus of our own imaginations, but the Jesus of the Bible, the one God has revealed to us. May we all come to love and to know this Jesus all the more. May we cling tightly to this Jesus who continues to be with us even now by his Holy Spirit until he visibly steps back into human history to finally bring all things to their ultimate completion under him in his good sovereignty. Would you bow with me and let's pray again. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.